apparent hectic, we are still practicing social distancing, so please excuse any sound glitches you may hear. We are staying safe, and we hope you are too. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. My name is Ali and I consider baking at midnight a form of self-care. Hi, I'm Amu and my preferred form of self-care is ridiculously long hot baths. Hi everyone, my name is Rufaro and my form of self-care is very long listening parties with the only lineup of girl bands and boy bands from my youth. And welcome back to another episode of Hectic. In the spirit of Mental Health Awareness Month, we wanted to have an episode that dives into something that, well, all of us confront on a daily basis. October was declared Mental Health Awareness Month in South Africa because it is not as widely discussed as it is in Western cultures. Over 400 million people worldwide deal with mental or neurological problems. And of this staggering figure, 16.5% of South Africans struggle with mental health or psychological challenges. But these figures are deeply reliant on access and socialization, and they don't count a demographic that is rarely offered the opportunity to get the help that they need. And this demographic is Black women. A study done by the South African Depression and Anxiety Group showed that the economic, cultural, and political backgrounds of many Black women are very large factors in the deficit of information on black women and mental health. With the pandemic, it is no secret that mental health is the central topic of just general discourse for many people. But we wanted to look at how mental health intersects with COVID-19, some of our personal experiences, general global discourse, and how everyone's coping right now. So let's get into it. How were we all like individually raised to perceive mental health? So was it discussed in your family and Also quite a touchy one, so it's okay if you don't really want to answer this one. But like, how were people who dealt with mental health issues treated in your families? Um, I was not perceived to to do anything (laughs) around mental health. (laughs) How did my family deal with it? We didn't. I was really trying to recall back in my mind, like Mm. whether mental health was ever a conversation and I was drawing blanks. Like there was just nothing. In my childhood, in my household, I just don't ever remember mental health ever being something that was acknowledged. I never remember any of my family members saying, oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. And yeah, so it was something they never spoke to me about. It was nothing I even knew like I would ever have to deal with at some point what I did remember was that there would be some kind of offhand comments about mental health issues so some things that I'm sure a lot of us can relate to is I would remember hearing people say like oh depression is is a white man's disease you know it's not something that black people suffer from um so Mm. it was racialized same it was very much like oh that's a white people thing you know that having a mental health issue is some kind of luxury that black people simply cannot afford. And so I guess mental health in my family was always kind of phrased, like framed as a choice. That if you're depressed, it's just because you're choosing not to be happy. You're not trying hard enough to be happy. 
And I guess we only really started having conversations around mental health when I turned about 15 or 16, because I think it was when my mom got very candid about the fact that my mother suffers from quite severe depression and anxiety. And, you know, when my sister and I started going through it ourselves, she also kind of framed it as a, you just have to wake up every day and you got to choose to be happy. You can overcome it. I've said this before and I'll say this again. I love my mama, y'all. Don't ever get it twisted. (laughs) It was just, it was just not the way to go about it at all. Yeah. I think what's going to again be really crazy is just how we all have very similar experiences. Cause I think this is just the general tale of black families and mental health. I think the only ways that it would really ever be discussed is like, again, like if there was a really serious situation and like one of my siblings was going through it and then everyone's kind of like, this nigga depressed us And then like, oh, but that's like for white people. But like, I think one of my sisters individually dealt with like pretty like intense periods of just like really poor mental health. And it would always, there would always be some other reason. There was always some other reason. Like it was like, mm, it's just puberty. Or, yeah, yeah. no, it's just, like, mm-hmm. school. She's just a really an overachiever or something. But on reflection, when we all just talk about what is happening during that time for them, they would say very easily, no, I think I was really... That was not a good time for me mentally. And I think that time still comes back up and I don't have a name for it. And calling it depression seems too real. And calling it depression in this house would probably give me a pretty bad rep and I don't want to have to deal with the consequences of calling it depression here. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because there's a part of me that wants to say we can't really blame our families for not having names for these things um, because maybe they didn't have, you know, the amount of information that we do. And like, you know, I found out about mental health by myself, but we'll, you know, Mm. we'll get there. And to be like, you know, like this isn't something that we talk about. No one can diagnose what you don't know. But then there's another part of me that's like, mm, y'all know what this is. Reputation is such a big thing. And like yeah. amongst African families, it's like, you don't want to say your child is depressed because they're going to look at you like, oh, you know, yeah. that household with the depressed <laughs> child. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Because they don't go to church, that's why. Yeah, and then the church lost Sunday. They didn't pay tithes that other Sunday. So it's it's interesting because I think there's an awareness and almost a choice to ignore. And that like fixation on what people will think and what people will have to say in like the nucleus of the black community. I think that's pr- pretty much been the undoing of a lot of Gen Z black kids mm. and. I think hopefully maybe in the future years that will kind of like filter out because I think there's a lot more conversations now than there ever were before. So how was mental health discussed at your school? My school towards like my last maybe two to three years of high school started doing this like wellness day bullshit. (laughs) And wellness day was basically a drug counselor would come in and tell us not to do drugs. We'd have a safe sex counselor who I love this woman. She was from Dignity Dreams. I forget her name, Rafari. I think you know her. Sharon Gordon. She was the the best part of the whole, like, experience. But when it came down to speaking about, you know, actual mental health, talking about anxiety and depression and other mental disorders, that kind of support was nowhere to be found. Instead, they would bring in dietitians to tell us about healthy eating or we'd have, like, Mm. 
group yoga sessions, you know? I remember in matric, I became that bitch who stayed taking mental health days. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'd only go to school like three times a week because I, I, I was burnt out. Yeah. And so pers- I would approach teachers personally and be like, listen, I'm not doing well. So I'm not coming to school tomorrow. Please email me my assignment. But the school, like the school culture as a whole, didn't encourage, you know, mental health awareness or really kind of gave us any resources to look after ourselves. Yeah, I don't know. My school is like, at the beginning, they kind of had like a bit of a 180 um, while I was there. So like at the beginning of my high school career, like they did not take anything seriously. Um, we had this guidance counselor. She was like the only source of support. Um, and she was just like the worst. <laughs> like, she would just. They usually are. She was the worst. Like, she would just like, she would like tell the teachers like your problems. Like, she'd tell other students your problems. <laughs> like, she just wasn't serious. Um, and yeah, like, I, I don't remember being like having any useful resources to deal with mental health the only thing I would say is something that we did have consistently would we would have like these retreat days where like we'd take the day of school and we'd go to like these gardens and we'd just sit and like just chill and everyone could like unpack their stuff um the only problem with those was that they were incredibly um religiously focused uh Mm. so it wasn't really a safe space for everyone you know but then like around grade 10, like, and I wonder if like anyone else who went to boarding school can like relate to this, but like often there would just be periods where like everyone would just be going through it in the boarding house, like at the same time. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with like proximity and hormones and stuff. Um, but like in grade 10, we had like a really bad wave of like people going through just everything mental health related, mm-hmm. like, bad. Um, to the point where like our grade was like, we need like actual like psychologists on site like if we're going to be living here we need mental health support mm-hmm. and our school actually listened to us they got a clinical psychologist to come and like mm-hmm. that was like the beginning of my journey into therapy and psychology and like literally without my school I wouldn't have discovered all of the benefits of therapy and like it was so pivotal for me um my school had we had psychologists in the junior school we had psychologists at high school had like three and in, with those psychologists, they had their degrees, they were trained and like, you know, yeah. But then you go and shame. I even want to say this woman's name because the name just fit how like bad she was at her job, but I won't do that. But like homegirl, you'd go there and she'd be like, Mm. <laughs> like okay <laughs> after this she was just like she would just like there was no progress <laughs> in any of those things and you'd be going there after like you know it's been a tough week you're trying to really recenter yourself and you just need to have a chat with the school psychologist and you'd get dust oh my god <laughs> But it was just so such a useless system in terms of mental health amongst the other useless things that they had in that school. But I think what was especially just like really jarring for us was the fact that all of the school psychologists were white. So, I mean, and if 90% of your boarding house is black, you know, there's yeah. that part. And, you know, it sounds weird when black people are always like, we need to have black psychologists at schools and all that kind of stuff. 
but it's important because you need someone who will be able to relate to you on a socio-economic and political level because if they don't get where you're coming from they won't understand some of the things you're going through and how to help you adequately like I can't go to someone being like yeah, in my family, we don't really talk about mental health. It'd be like, a lot of families deal with that. No, nigga, cultural. It's black family. <laughs> <laughs> After all of that mess that we had to deal with in our individual schools, just the ineffective conduct, how do you view mental health now? For me, mental health is like, honestly, like the most important thing in my life. Like, I can quite frankly say that I structure my whole days and like everything in my life around whether it's going to make me feel okay from like what I do in the morning, my morning routine, how I carry out my day. Like everything is surrounded by this question of, am I going to be okay? Is this okay for my mental health? What routines are going to be good for me? What routines can reduce my anxiety? And so it's literally like a central tenant of my life. Like I don't do anything without thinking about how it's going to affect my mental. And it's, something like I've literally it's not something that come came naturally to me I had to kind of redesign my life to look this way and I think the unfortunate thing about mental health and maybe this generation and I hope it gets better is that we didn't learn about mental health out of leisure we learned about mental health because we had to out of survival and I had to prioritize myself because I could not sustain the way I used to live and so what does mental health mean to me it means everything like I literally structure everything around my mental health mm-hmm. I love that and that's definitely mm-hmm. like been a benefit of being friends with you I must say because <laughs> I am kind of I'm the kind of person where I take everyone else's mental health really seriously but mine is kind of the last thing I consider so I wish mm-hmm. I was as self-aware as Ali and I think I'm so grateful because I have friends who are very open about mental health like when we sit down and speak to each other we're like oh how are you and then people will make it a point to like how are you doing emotionally mentally where are you at yeah and that goes so far because it makes you check in with yourself it often makes me check in with myself when I've been like pretty bad and like neglectful about my mental and emotional health but like I said I wish it was something that I did as like religiously as Ali I am kind of the person and especially during lockdown where I kind of threw my mental health out the window. I was just, there were so, I thought there were just so many other things to take into consideration where I was like, oh, if I haven't gotten out of bed in three days and I've been crying nonstop, that's normal. It's a pandemic. What else should I expect? But it was actually, I guess, you know, coming home to my parents and realizing that, oh, well, it, that wasn't as normal as you thought it was. <laughs> But mm-hmm. it is something that I do try and prioritize. You know, I've during lockdown definitely made me very aware of what rituals make me feel good about myself. So that when mm-hmm. I feel myself kind of spiraling out of control, I know what exactly I need to do to kind of balance myself out. I think I just want to say that, like, you know, everyone's on their own journey. <laughs> I don't mean to sound very, you know, up in the air and. <laughs> all spiritual or whatever but like um everyone's timelines are so different and like um I appreciate that I've had an impact in your life Amu but like literally everyone it takes people so many years to figure things out like it this is the way I am now is the result of literally six years the way that I deal with stuff is not the way that you're going to deal with stuff like for me I need to have very rigid routines that I don't break from but for other people routine doesn't work for them 
So, you know, cater to yourself. With what Ali said, like, whenever I get into very, like, rigid routines, that's when I probably, like, start to, like, get into, like, my worst mental state. So I think with that, the way that I view mental health now is, like Ali was saying, it's very relative. And Mm. it's just taking everything day by day is so important. Because, like, one of my biggest predicaments as a human being has been constantly focusing very intently on what's going to happen in the future and because of that like it's really like backtracked my ability to be able to like sort out what's going on with me with my family with my friends in the present and that's been my own personal journey with mental health so the way that I view it now just is like take it day by day step by step and whatever you need to do for you as long as it's not destructive to the people around you and to yourself to your body then I guess it's good, but then also it depends on your own personal philosophies and all that jazz. So, I mean, you can't necessarily dictate that for a person. Mental health for me right now is just really relative. But I guess for all of us, I think we can all say that we've had to unlearn basically everything from our parents. <laughs> from about Pretty much everything. Since we saw in my preamble that Black people <laughs> internationally are at higher risk of developing mental health issues why do we think this specific demographic is just so harbored within stigma around mental health if we suffer the most from mental health issues? Oh, girl, it's a history. (laughs) (laughs) History. I think it's such an interesting question. It's probably questions that people write theses theses on. (laughs) You good, girl, you good. The first thing I can think of is quite literally history. Like, I think Black people have been dealing with a lot. We've been dealing with slavery. We've been dealing with apartheid. We've been dealing with... That all of- and it actually reminds me of my favorite book, which is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy that everyone should read. And Rufara has a copy, my copy of. And <laughs> basically, the main point of the book is that oppressed groups of people are dealing with war and are dealing with dictators and dealing with all of these big ass things that there's no time to deal with small scale trauma and so I think a lot of the reason why maybe it became a stigma was because there was just no space to deal with depression as black people when you're trying to fight for your life on the streets every single day like what what is your sadness to a people's oppression you know Mm -hmm. I think that is a very real thing and then because it kind of went unnamed for so long and this is just my own thinking I don't know the actual history but I think because depression and things went on for so long now when you're coming out and you're like I feel really sad for really prolonged periods of time people are like okay (laughs) like (laughs) okay we've been through so much like your sadness is minuscule Mm -hmm. um so I think that's a really big uh factor and then I think obviously what we were speaking about earlier perception um people don't want to be perceived as that family or that person who suffers from mental health because that's not something that black people are supposed to have yeah I mean there's so many things yeah that stigma is just so deeply entrenched that it would be so difficult to try and find its origin Mm, but I definitely think it might also have something to do with black people's internalized idea of you know strength the idea that we're Mm. strong and we should be able to endure and we should be able to withstand so many things because we are a persistent and resilient people we live through slavery and apartheid 
and Black Lives Matter in all of its manifestations around the globe, we are survivors. That is a fact. But that survival takes such a toll on you. But I definitely think that, you know, I can only speak for myself that from my experience growing up in my home, it was very much a thing that, you know, you have to be strong because you have no other choice. Weakness yeah. is never an option because someone will capitalize on that or it will backtrack you when you already, you know, when you're already 400 years behind the competition. It's just not a luxury that we can afford. Yeah, I literally, I was going to say that like, it's already so hard to be perceived as a black person. Like there's already a million and one things that the skin comes with that to now be a black person with anxiety or depression. Like, I think the stigma is like, why would you want that for yourself? <laughs> to be black <laughs> and depressed. Gee. <laughs> because it's a struggle, girl. A struggle. <laughs> um, but um, I think that point of strength is so, so, so valid because being a strong person makes you used to pain and makes you endure pain and so when you're in pain you're kind of like okay it's fine like this is a part of life but so you don't diagnose it but you know yeah sometimes you don't have to be so strong um I think that idea of constantly trying to maintain that strength and resilience and that like enduring spirit and blackness or whatever is definitely why we are less likely to go and seek help because if you are to think about like what I was mentioning with regards to the luxury of being able to be someone who is dealing with mental health, that luxury itself comes with many added costs and mm-hmm. things that have to do with access to healthcare and access to medical aid and all these other resources that you need to be able to get adequate and really sufficient help. Mm-hmm. And for black people, especially when I was talking to my sisters, well, we are middle class and we do have medical aid and we can afford those things. That's their mentality still remains. Even if a lot of black people have the access, they're still kind of like, well, man, um, but should I really, I mean, ah, but then mm, it still feels really white. And I think it's a weird way of still trying to maintain that like lack of assimilation into the grand or white culture that we've been thrust into as middle-class black people I suppose but for black people who don't necessarily have the same socioeconomic status as the girls on this podcast and other people in our extended community I think definitely on a government level there isn't access there isn't enough discussion there isn't like there's just no support for black people with regards to the mental health part and I mean hierarchy of needs right if I can't eat food or if like Ellie said there's a war in my backyard I mean (laughs) I'm not really searching for the next psychologist around the block (laughs) because I think when we talk about mental health it's very easy to get stuck in that same loop of like with these like middle class black people talking about how guys we need to advocate for the mental health access and like resources for black people but how do you guys think that that conversation is I guess maybe deterring from another conversation altogether that needs to happen about mental health for like poorer black people. It definitely does feel a bit self-indulgent to be sitting here with all the resources that I do have um, to be sitting here talking about mental health. And there's definitely a major conversation that needs to happen about, you know, around mental health in poorer communities. Because if you think about it, they're probably the most, people in poor communities are the most at risk because of, 
the violence and the poverty that they are subjected to, which really just unfortunately reinforce each other and are very much trap, you know, everybody into these vicious cycles. There's absolutely a conversation that needs to happen there. The fact that people in townships make up for most of our case, like most of our population, and they're the ones, you know, townships are the hotspots for crime. That isn't an individual problem that definitely mm -hmm. leads to something so much larger that undoubtedly has an effect on their mental health. And I think our government, you know, we have a government that loves pretty words and pretty mm -hmm. promises. But I think that a bomb to South, like to, for South Africa's issues would be nationwide, free, effective therapy. God damn it, we are a traumatized nation. If I could afford it, I'd buy everybody a therapist, honestly. Yeah, I mean, just even, like you said, like just us having this conversation, and there's already so much privilege in the people who can afford to have a phone to listen to our podcast. Or like, you know, we're obviously speaking to a very specific demographic of people, um, and we are a part of a very specific demographic, and we are already struggling so much. And so to think of like what working classes are going through and what other people who don't have the resources that we do, what kind of mental health issues they have and there's no support for that. Like it honestly does truly break my heart. Um, and yeah, so I, it's just the people who, I don't know, it's so dark. <laughs> what, a, so what a light episode to be recording. And on that dark note, we're gonna take a break. <laughs> welcome back to this episode of hectic and we left on a pretty dark note but we're going to try and get a little bit more theoretical to bring a little bit of levity to this episode so the thing is, the next question isn't any more helpful. But oh, anyway, no. how have wellness and self-care been co-opted by capitalism? Girl, what a light question. No, I think this is the lightest that we're going to get the whole episode. Um. Okay. So this is a phenomenon that let's, let's name it bath bomb wellness. Right. Capitalism like the bitch that she is saw that everyone <laughs> she saw that everyone was struggling that everyone was going through it that gen z is one of the most depressed and anxious generations ever and capitalism do you know what she said let's make money off of these people's sadness that's what she said <laughs> with her chest too with her chest, with her chest. And so now there's this like proliferation of like very subconscious messaging that's like, if you get a bath bomb and sit in a bath for like half an hour, you know, self-care, you know, like this can fix mm -hmm. your problems. If you buy a face mask, if you light a candle, mm. you essentially have one of our products and use mm. it, it will contribute to your self-care. It will also contribute to their capital and to their profit. That's all they want. They don't give a shit about whether you're using the bath bomb to do whatever, to bath, to help heal if you're suffering. And so it's, it really bothers me because it's just, 
it's really lightened the weight of self-care and it makes it mm. seem like, like if you use a bath bomb with a face mask and a fucking candle that smells like vanilla then your depression's gonna go away it's not <laughs> it's really not and like bath bombs are great if you have access to them taking a bath is a great way to calm down i'm not gonna discredit that but it is so minute in the greatest scheme of mental health and self-care and so that's my take <laughs> have we discovered a new smear campaign Addie i think so i was about to say Addie capitalism. Capitalism. dude i had the other rant and the other one about bp <laughs> i think we found a new smear campaign for a different episode we'll talk about my breakfast conspiracy uh, theory, but yeah, no. get out, <laughs> guys. Breakfast is amazing. This brand of crack, she's <laughs> been trying to sell it. Breakfast <laughs> is a myth invented by capitalism. This is a fact. <laughs> if you hang around Ali long enough, you'll hear the breakfast is a myth one. You'll mm-hmm. hear that I think also the diamonds are a myth, diamonds for engagement rings are a myth one. I think that was you, Ali. And yes. you might, if you stick around long enough, you'll hear about the black market where people trade orchids. Okay, first of all, why do you need a diamond when you get married? Hmm? To sustain the mining industry. <laughs> blood diamonds, Ellie, blood diamonds. Tell them, tell them. Diamond. There's no need for a diamond. There's no need. Don't mm. actually, let me stop there. I'm not getting into the orchids because that's, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. That's a whole Vice article. <laughs> On the topic of capitalism co-opting wellness, there's, listen, I am a huge fan of bath bombs. Like I said earlier, I love taking long baths. I personally am obsessed with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop Labs. I'm sorry, that's just who I am. I'll say it point blank. <laughs> Listen, she, if I was a rich white woman, I would probably be Gwyneth Paltrow. But just, I think that because capitalism is a product of liberalism and neoliberalism, there's this whole, you know, focus on the individual. And so the wellness industry kind of sends this message that if you are anxious, depressed, etc., that's your problem. You're not meditating enough. You're not eating healthily mm-hmm. enough. You're not sleeping well enough. You know, it's, it's you. You're the problem. And they sell you these yoga packages and face masks and bath bombs and green juices because they're trying to tell you that you are in control. And the reason that you're, you're so unhappy is because you're just not taking initiative in your life. When, in fact, what the fuck is there to be happy about these days? I'm sorry, but like we're going through an economic depression. We're living through a pandemic. And even before that, the gap between the rich and poor was just, you know, getting larger and larger every day. Youth unemployment in South Africa was skyrocketing. The, honestly, the world is kind of just turning to shit because of capitalism. And instead of kind of tapping into our collective power and realizing that, let me just clear something up that, you know, if you are struggling with mental health, that might be something that's genetic, it's been passed on through your family, hormonal imbalances, you know, things like that, all of them are very valid. But we can't deny that when you're struggling, when you're thinking about how you're going to feed your family, how you're going to pay for school, if you're going to get shot down in the street like a dog, if you're going to be attacked because you're a woman or a queer person in South Africa, 
that compounds those feelings of helplessness and anxiety and depression. So instead of, you know, kind of tapping into our collective power and holding the powers that be accountable, the powers that be have convinced all of us that it's our fault, that we're so anxious and we're so depressed. So that's my personal gripe with the co-opting of wellness, that rather than kind of realizing the socioeconomic and political landscape that's contributing to so much of our unhappiness, they're kind of like, oh, just do a face mask and you'll feel 10 times better, girl. Don't worry. With what you guys were talking about, especially with like yoga and meditation as the ways that capitalism is trying to sell to you that this is how you'll get over your anxiety and your depression, that brings up the whole idea of like appropriation of Eastern cultures and practices in order to create this whole lucrative system of how self-care is built. So what are your, some of your thoughts on that, especially for Ali, who identifies as a Buddhist? Right. So, I don't know, this is feels a bit awkward because I like went on like a whole rant about capitalism co-opting wellness, but I'm like very much a part of that capitalism. <laughs> I'm like 100% buying the candles and buying the yoga mats and everything. And so as much as like there's the messaging of like, you're not doing yoga enough or you're not meditating enough, you know, and how problematic that is. I'm someone who can confidently say that yoga and meditation have been absolutely pivotal in my journey. Um, And like, yeah, like Rufara said, I am a Buddhist. I've been a Buddhist since 2016. And I've just found, I grew up as a Christian and then left Christianity. Then I was a very intense atheist for a part of my life. And that didn't feel like true to myself. That didn't feel right. And then I found Buddhism and like that has been, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. And so like, there's no denying that that's helped me, but you know, it's hard when you follow um, a philosophy that isn't yours and belongs to the East. And it's especially harder when that philosophy is being appropriated so intensely in the West. And um, you've got people who are saying that there's like no more Palo Santo wood left because people are just harvesting it so much. And for people who don't know what Palo Santo is, it's like um, a very holy wood that is almost very similar to sage that you burn and it like cleanses energies and all these things. Um, And because people are now on this whole wellness wave, people are just selling Palo Santo and sage and crystal and all of these things that again, we're doing what capitalism does. It's just, um, expends all of the resources and so it's there's a lot of things at play and then also because it's become so commodified people don't actually honor the actual tradition of it and where it comes from and so um it's something I'm still trying to figure out as someone who literally bought Palisanta the other day I'm like yo but like (laughs) (laughs) like how can I practice this respect it and respect the earth from which it came um and how do I not contribute to this whole appropriation of like eastern practices and it's like so bad like I'll go onto TikTok and like people will just be like uh manifestation let's do this let's do this like how do you make a spell how do you do all of this really intensely spiritual stuff and there's no history behind that there's no acknowledgement of the native people who came up with these spells that you are just throwing away. There's no 
you know, there's no sanctity. It's just being thrown around. And I think that's a really big thing. So I, I would say one, one really important thing is that if you are going to choose to practice any kind of Eastern rituals, give it its history. Please understand where it's coming from, what it means to those people. You can't just be just manifesting. Where does it come from? Why is it so important? You know, um, that's a place to start, but it's very layered and we could do the whole podcast on this. And with that, um, this is a pretty intense question as well, but would we really be able to consider any of this self-care if it's inherently feeding into like the monster that is capitalism? <laughs> Why is everyone looking down? Like, oh. <laughs> no, this is an intense question. It is really difficult because the whole idea of self-care is the idea of unplugging, you know, that you're separating yourself from all the powers and forces that be that might be contributing to your daily stresses. And so capitalism is such, it is a daily stress for all of us, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, capitalism acts upon every single decision you make in your life. Can you afford this? You know, can you do this? You know, it's such, it's everywhere. It dictates everything. So it is a difficult question to be like, can I still be looking after myself? Because for me, like I said earlier, taking a bath is like a really huge part of self-care for me. I feel so good when I take a bath. And for me, like I make an event out of it. I get, you know, my essential oils and I get a nice glass of wine and a book and I make a playlist on my iPhone. So <laughs> it's kind of so like ridiculously capitalistic, but it still makes me feel really, really good. So I guess the question, the answer is, I don't know. The thing is, the thing about capitalism is that it forces you to engage with it. If you mm. wanted to be free of capitalism, you need to move to the fucking bundus, farm your own shit, catch and like hunt and catch your own meat. Essentially, capitalism forces your participation. So if I can find like my little corner of capitalism that makes me feel really good, I'll take it. I think, you know, this whole podcast is about holding space for complexity, right? So <laughs> I think to answer the question, can it be self-care if it feeds capitalism? I want to say yes. I feel like we can acknowledge how bad it is to feed into capitalism, but we can also acknowledge that sometimes a bath can literally save your day and make you feel 100% better. <laughs> it's really that simple. Like sometimes I really do just, I need a bath bomb and I need a candle and I need to sit down. And I think for me, it's like capitalism, as pervasive as it is, you can find your corners to try and evade the system. So that's why so many people are going thrifting. That's why so many people are buying at specific independent, like, yeah, I know how we feel about thrifting, but it is a way to evade capitalism. And like people shop at specific farmers markets that they know are not part of any big corporation. Like you do your own bit in your own way to evade the grander system of mega corporations just taking control of everything. So if you want to buy a bath bomb, maybe don't buy it from clicks. Buy it from some independent little store on Instagram that you found recently. There are resources. There's so many things that you can use to be able to find your bath bombs, your essential oils, whatever else you need. You can probably find it at some place that's not like feeding into your guilty conscience of how 
you're really plugging into capitalism every day and don't feel guilty about it either because like everyone is saying it's difficult to evade capitalism truly because we can't If you have any thoughts, opinions, or comments you want to share, just drop us a voice message using the link in our description. Here at Hectic, we want to build a small community, and we would love for you to be a part of that. Such a dark episode, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try and bring back some light with the question. What are some of the affordable and accessible ways that we look after ourselves that don't necessarily include going to Lush and buying a bath bomb? <laughs> you can take a walk. Right? <laughs> I was going to say that. Guys, nature is around if you're around nature, if you have the privilege to be around nature, which is like, maybe it's not affordable or accessible. Social <laughs> apartheid, man. Facial apartheid. That's a crazy one. Facial part is crazy. Um, but I was going to say, like, you know, taking a walk could be free, but, like, we could analyze whether taking a walk is actually free. <laughs> I should go. I feel like I got myself in my head. <laughs> you can go for a walk with, even going with friends, oh. never mind. Ah, fuck the system. There is no hope. Bye. No, shut up. Use shut your essential oils. I'm done. Oh, <laughs> not, we are not that kind of podcast. I don't know what to tell the people. What are so the affordable, accessible ways that don't lead us into a GBV conversation? <laughs> okay. Okay. That's that on period. Though. That's the thing. Okay. You could. This is something that I like to do. You can take some time out, maybe find like a good 10 minutes in your day, which also feels like a really privileged thing to say. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. Like if, if you can find like some quiet space, just some new time to just sit down, reflect, just be, try and be present, take some breaths. Breathing is free. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Personally, I find because life, hustle, bustle, capitalism and whatnot, it, it takes so much of your free time. So if you could really try and just sit and process things, I find that's a very, very useful form of self-care because half the time we're too busy to recognize that we're depressed or anxious. So just giving yourself space can be very transformative and you don't have to spend too much money to find some space. Yes, referral. Yes, and on the thing of giving yourself some time, really important thing that I learned from my peer counselor at UCT, UCT students, use your resources. Those peer counselors are free and they're also on like this, I think they're on the zero Wi-Fi thing, but you can go on the DSA website, all that good stuff. Just search peer counselors and they can really be quite helpful. But um she said that like what she does in the morning is that she takes like she wakes up extremely early but that's also if you can like no one's trying to force you because Ellie's also one of those people who don't don't believe in mornings we're not gonna get into that one started on Ellie's I only wake up at 12 p.m philosophy and that's my business I don't know (laughs) I have such a beef with that I have such a beef 
Why do you have beef with that? Why do you have beef with that? I'm all... Just because you wake up at eight in the morning, bro. Mornings are not moral. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, but <laughs> for the first hour of your day, before you start doing any proper work, don't go on any social media or any devices. Just give yourself some timetable to sort out your day. So do everything that you normally would do if it didn't include a phone or a laptop or any of that technology. Just where you can get through that part of the morning and then after that hour, then you can go on all of your other devices. But I think it just gives you a lot of perspective for as to how, like, how quickly we turn to social media. Not to be like the anti-social media police, like our phones are destroying us. Get off your phones. But like, they yeah, they're okay. off phones. <laughs> So I just that hour. I can comment on the effect of phones. Oh, well died. Oh. <laughs> like two years late, but I'm here now. <laughs> so that's my little accessible self-care tip. Thanks for sharing. I would say that, you know, I obviously have things that make me feel really good that I've been able to identify, but I think that your idea of self-care doesn't need to be so far removed from just your daily life. I think just being a little bit more mindful about how you move through the world and, you know, checking in with yourself. When do you feel your absolute best? Because I know my mom and I make fun of her so much, but she's so cute. My mom feels her best when she's like dancing around the house. So when music is blaring at all times of the day and homegirl is like dancing her tango, you know what, that's, that's when she feels her absolute best during the day. So I think that if you're just taking stock of your day and when do you feel like your best self, your most centered self, your most aligned self and try and give yourself that every single day. Cause I think all of us are kind of running into roadblocks. We're like, Oh, do this. Oh, but that sounds so privileged. You know, I have the time and the luxury to do this. I think just every single day in your life, there's a little moment, even if it's just five minutes where you feel really, really good. And you should, if you are able to try and replicate that every single day. Self-care is every day. Don't wait until things get bad to practice self-care. Yeah. Don't yeah. wait. And this is like a metaphor that has really helped me think about self-care. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're physically like cleaning a house, right? You clean it often, like almost every single day. Because if you wait three weeks to clean a house, it's going to be so overwhelming. <laughs> There's going to be dust everywhere. There's going to be this, that, and everything else. And self-care is the same. You got to do your hygiene every single day inside your mind. And yeah. So to leave everything on this very cute note that we finally managed to get to, what do we want to say as a sort of open letter to Black women, Black people that are currently struggling with their mental health? I think I would first say it's okay to be struggling. It is absolutely okay to not be okay. No one is okay for all of their lives. You know, this is normal. Um, We see you. We recognize your struggle. Your struggle is real and valid. Those feelings that you have are real and valid. And you're not alone. I promise you, everyone goes through it everyone is going through it together you're not in isolation and specifically to black women and black femmes the world cannot even begin to understand how heavy weight of life is on your shoulders 
And so give yourself credit for still being here and for making it and for surviving. And I promise you, nothing lasts forever. That is a certain truth of life. We move through, everything will pass and just stick it through. That was beautiful. I think that's it. That's the episode right there. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks time. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to catch any necessary resources mentioned throughout the episode in our link tree on Instagram. For the next episode and to close off Mental Health Awareness Month, we have a special interview lined up, so stay tuned for more details. What you heard in this episode and what you're about to hear now is Next Summer by the band Internet Girl. You can get this single and more of their music on any streaming platform. Here at Hectic, we support local talent, we support independent talent, and if you listen to this podcast, you should too. Remember your face and what was said. The memory fades and nothing's left. Oh, you wouldn't last a night. You wouldn't last a night. You wouldn't last a second.